You may be seated. I wonder if you're the type of person that likes to reread a particular book at least once a year, or maybe rewatch a particular movie once a year. The kind of person that a story can lay hold of and just not let you out of its grip. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the most famous preacher in England in the 19th centuries, was one such person. He said in his autobiography, somewhere in his early teenage years, he first read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And then later on, he reflected in life and he said, next to the Bible, the book I value most is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I believe I've read it through at least a hundred times. If you do the math, that's at least twice a year he seems to be reading through it. And it's a volume of which I never seem to tire. And if you ask the Apostle Paul about the story that never seems to tire him, uh, it's the salvation of sinners, the story of God's saving grace for people caught in the chains and trapped in the transgression that we were born into. Because you don't have to read very far into any of his letters before you see him just burst out with praise and adoration and even explanation of the gospel. You don't have to read very far into any of his letters that you don't slam into his ecstasy over salvation. And we've already seen it in Titus chapter 2, and we see it again today, that Paul is like the old hymn writer who says, tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love, never wanting to race away too far from the good news that God has saved sinners. But we need to understand the context of where this Declaration of the good news comes to us because what we looked at last week was just the first two verses of Titus chapter 3. And what Paul says in those two verses is that Christians are to live in the world in such a way that is different, that grace makes us different. And you'll notice in verse 1, that means we relate to governing authorities differently. We submit to them. We're obedient. We're ready for every good work. And we relate to everybody else altogether different too. You'll notice in verse 2, we're to avoid quarreling. We're to speak evil of no one. To be gentle. To show perfect courtesy to all people. And so what we get in our text today, verses 3 through 7, is Paul's answer to the question that my soon-to-be three-year-old daughter keeps asking her mom and me. Why? Why? ought Christians to live differently in the world. Now, what he's going to tell us, of course, isn't he, is that remember God's saving grace. Remember the gospel that has changed you from enemies into God's children. It's good news that requires, that demands, that calls for gentleness and meekness, because don't you remember that's how God has behaved towards you. So the simple point that he's bringing out in this theologically dense, doctrinally packed set of verses is the call to remember God's saving love towards you. If you call Christ your Lord, your Savior, your Master, it's the call this morning. Remember God's sovereign love towards you. And maybe you're in here this morning and you haven't ever trusted in that sovereign love. I want you to see it in the fullness of what the Bible says it is. And maybe for the first time this morning, 
you will trust in his sovereign love towards you. Because what you get in these verses is essentially a collection of the basics of salvation. He's answering all kinds of essential questions related to what God's saving grace looks like, where it comes from. So why do you need it? Who's responsible for it? What's the goal? What's the end? What's the purpose of God's saving grace? We've got five verses. I've just got five headings to walk us through the text. And I first want you to see in verse 3, your need for salvation. Verse 3, your need for salvation. Look at what he says at the beginning. For we ourselves were. So the present duties of verses 1 and 2 of the Christians there in Crete in the first century, that the present duties rest on their past identity. They're to remember who they were. The rationale to be who they are now in Jesus Christ and not who they once were in sin is remember you once were this. And it's quite striking if you just look through the first two verses. You get, you get seven virtues. Seven virtues that would be true of Christians. Interestingly, what he says in verse 3, here are the seven vices that used to mark your life in sin. And just walk through them with me. He says, we ourselves were once foolish, senseless, unwise, having no discernment to be able to see, to understand, to hear spiritual things. Number two, we ourselves were once disobedient. Our heart toward God in sin is one of rebellion. And oftentimes what it seems to be true about non-Christians there in Crete, you want to know the ordinary way that you could see their rebellion against God is just notice their rebellion against any human authority in their own life. Number three, we once were led astray. The Greek word for led astray is actually the one from which we get our English word planet. And if you know the etymology of planet, it just means wandering star. We ourselves are once spiritually planets, wandering in our transgression and iniquity. Like another old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We ourselves were once, notice as the text continues, slaves to various passions and pleasures. You want to emphasize the, the idea, the noun there of, of slaves. It's not just merely by choice, merely by desire that men and women sin, were born into sin and therefore enslaved to it, chained to transgressions, chained to iniquity, these bonds of pleasures and passions weighing us down and never letting us out of Satan's grip, never letting us out and loose from the domain of darkness in which we find ourselves. That's who we once were. Also, you'll notice, we once were passing our days in malice and envy. So kids, uh, do you know what the word malice means? Uh, I don't think it's one we tend to use very much in our context today. It's just ill will that seeks to harm, seeks to hurt. Students, you might be more common with another take on that word, maliciousness. The malicious intent to do evil to one another. And Paul says in our sin, that's who we used to be. Wanting to hurt people. Wanting to harm people. Oftentimes coming from envy, what he says next. You might remember the stories in the Bible. How Cain murdered Abel because of envy. Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery because of envy. Korah and his clan rebelled against Moses' authority as God's redeemer because of envy. King Saul tries to pierce David with a spear against the palace wall. Why? Because of envy. You once were slaves passing 
your days in malice and envy, not just that, you once were hated by others. Maybe you feel this way sometimes. No one loves you. No one seems to have mercy towards you, grace towards you, not just that. Not only were we living a life where others loathed us, we were living a life, you'll see as verse 3 ends, where we loathed others, hating one another. It's the portrait of who we once were. Our present duties commanded in verse 1 and 2 were to remember our, our past identity in depravity, these seven truths about who we are. So I wonder what you think about the life of sin, how you consider sin. Do you think about it with the depth of this kind of earnestness, this depth of clarity, this depth of heinousness and wickedness? This is who we once were. Or maybe you tend to be a person that trifles with sin, plays with sin, treats sin as though it's just some mere personality trait, or it actually is an offense against a heinous God that demands death and eternal punishment. Your need for salvation is this. This is who you once were. And so what he's going to do in the rest of the text is tell us about this salvation, where it comes from, how we come to know it, what it does within our life together. And he wants, to see, he wants us to see, first of all, the Father's mercy in salvation. Some of you might remember from grammar classes of old how a teacher would have said, don't ever begin a sentence with the word but. Injunctions about a conjunction. Don't begin sentences with the word but. However, if you know Paul's writings, you praise the Lord that he often begins sentences with the word but. Look at verse 4. This is who you were but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It's quite like what he said in chapter 2 verse 11 when God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ. He's using different words now though. Goodness and loving kindness. Christ is the epiphany of the Father's goodness and loving kindness. I'm sure many of you know the name Bill Gates. You know him as this technological innovator, this brilliant man who co-founded Microsoft. Maybe you also know that Bill Gates is quite generous with the billions of dollars that he has made. Uh, Independent Magazine recently ran a list of the most generous philanthropists in the world, and Bill Gates, by some measure, tops the list at $27 billion he has given away in the course of his life. But such kindness and generosity is but a single drop from a pin in the ocean of God's philanthropy. Because the word here for loving kindness in the ESV is in the Greek, philanthropy. That God is the true philanthropist. He is the one who in an abundance of kindness and goodness and generosity pours out more love than you could ever possibly fathom even when you try. And he tries to summarize it. Paul does. You'll see in verse 5 with this three-word statement on which all our hope hangs. He saved us. In the midst of your sin, in the midst of your iniquity, when all this was going on, God our Savior and loving kindness and goodness appeared and He saved us. So, kids, we thought about a few weeks ago from the end of Titus chapter 2 about this word salvation. It shows up in our text again, doesn't it? This idea that God saves sinners. It's a word maybe, salvation, that you've heard before. Do you remember how I told you I wanted you to think about it a couple of weeks ago? 
in the first century context of Titus's time, it just simply meant safety. You know, he kind of called on this language from the world of baseball. If you see an umpire, you're at a baseball game, watching a baseball game, the umpire does this, it's a what? An announcement of safe. But it's a word that shows up oftentimes throughout the Bible. You can think of the story where Jesus is asleep at the boat, at the bottom of the boat. Uh, the disciples are there, and this great storm arises, and they, they are fearing for their lives, and so they go wake up Jesus. And do you know what they say? Save us, Master. Danger and death is on the way. Save us. And Paul is accenting, isn't he, God's initiative, God's plan, God's power, God's work and salvation. He saved us. And lest we think that there might be one shrivel of evidence, one shrivel of merit that we contribute to this, look at how the text continues. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So you can't demand salvation, you don't deserve salvation, you can't decree salvation, you can't earn salvation, you can't merit salvation, you can't ordain salvation. Nothing in your life calls for you to be rescued. But what leads God to rescue sinners like you and me? You see it there at the end of verse 5 again, what Paul is emphasizing here? God's mercy. His mercy. So think about this with me. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Grace is going to show up in verse 7 of our text. Uh, kids, students, think about it. How would you describe mercy? Words we often use in our common parlance today. What's the difference between mercy and grace? Well, grace deals with guilt. Mercy deals with misery. Grace deals with the curse of sin. Mercy deals with the condition of sin. Surely it's no accident that he has just laid out this sevenfold instruction about our former condition in sin. And here he says that God has saved us according to His mercy. The idea here even is a pity, a good kind of pity, this strong affection that God the Father has towards sinners like you and me in your miserable condition. He has mercy towards you. This is the Father's mercy in salvation. So I wonder, when was the last time you marveled at God's mercy? Maybe it's been a while. And maybe it's been a while because you've forgotten to remember the most basic truths of our Christian faith. Or maybe it's been a while because you've never actually truly come to Jesus Christ and fully understood this most basic glorious reality that we are saved according to the Father's mercy. He wants us to know, number two, as he continues to talk about salvation, about the Spirit's power in salvation. Look at how the text continues in verse 5. He saved us according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In ways we may not have understood if you've read this passage before, this is almost certainly a reference to baptism. Certainly, pretty much all the apostolic fathers, the early church fathers, understood it to be a reference to baptism. You might recall the passage in Acts chapter 22. Paul is there before this violent Jewish mob who's wanting to kill him. And so he gives his testimony. He gives his spiritual story of conversion to Jesus Christ. And he talks about this man named Ananias 
who first came across Paul after Paul had his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And Ananias, Ananias said to Paul, rise, be baptized, and wash away your sin. But Ananias and Paul, uh, nor the church fathers we want to pay attention to, thought baptism automatically washes away the sin. But what they're emphasizing there is that baptism is a picture of the regenerating, renewing grace of the Spirit that's poured out on God's people's life. This idea of regeneration, of course, is one of rebirth. It's about being born again. Texts we read even earlier from Ezekiel communicating this identity that sinners, dead in transgressions, are made alive, given a new heart, born again by the washing of the Spirit. Also, it talks about renewal, which could be spiritual transformation that happens at conversion. I actually tend to think regeneration and renewal is just this rhetorical emphasis, talking about the same power of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that the Spirit is God's power. The Spirit is God's agent for salvation, making us new from the inside out. You want to see the Father's mercy in salvation, the Spirit's power in salvation. And now we also want to see the Son's grace in salvation because it's striking in this passage how Paul is bringing out the Trinitarian nature of redemption, the Trinitarian nature of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7, the Spirit is poured out upon us so that being justified by His grace. It's a purpose and the Spirit's pouring out into our hearts through Jesus Christ that we might be justified. Now, I remember a few years ago when we took our children, we had two at the time, Owen and Hudson, out to trick-or-treat for the first time on Halloween. Owen was probably only about two months away from turning three, and when we had him in his costume and he and Hudson had their candy buckets in hand, we walked outside of our house and took a, took a right turn out of our door. We went to our neighbor's house, knocked on the door, trick-or-treat. In goes a piece of candy. Owen takes off back to his left to our house. And I said, hey, buddy, hold on. We got more houses to go. There's more candy to get. And with all the sincere innocence of a two-year-old, eyes get big. Smiles start stretching across the face. I'll never forget it. You mean there's more? <laughs> you mean there's more that we get? I hope you feel that way about the gospel. You mean there's more? Not just salvation, regeneration, renewal, justification by His grace. So what's the difference between regeneration and justification? What's the difference? Uh, we want to understand that if we get this right, we get the gospel right. If we get this wrong, we get the gospel altogether wrong. So how would you describe the difference? What does it mean that the Spirit regenerates us and Christ justifies us? Well, perhaps a simple way to think through it is regeneration is the Spirit making us righteous. That by the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, God makes us righteous. Whereas justification is God declaring us righteous through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. This one-time declaration. You want to image and have in your mind the courtroom scene of a gavel being slammed down. And in your sin, that gavel should be slammed down by our Holy Father. And what should He say? Guilty. Guilty. Judgment unto eternal punishment. Guilty. But because of Jesus Christ, His grace, 
dealing with our guilt, dealing with the curse, what does that gavel then lead to? A justification announcement of not guilty because of what our Savior has done for us. The Savior's grace in salvation, you notice, continues as verse 7 ends. We're justified by His grace so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, kids, students, do you know that technically speaking, you are an heir in your family? Do you know what that means? You are an heir within your family. That means the family property, the family inheritance belongs to you as children of your parents in a much more magnificent, maybe even mysterious way. What God is telling us here through His Word is that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have all become heirs, children of the Father, given a right, privilege, and access to the inheritance that is ours forever. Because you notice how the verse ends. It's the hope of eternal life. Heirs to eternal rest. Heirs to eternal glory. Heirs to eternal happiness. Heirs to eternal blessedness as we see the King in His beauty. And what Paul is telling us then in verse 7 is not just are we to know our need for salvation and how the Father's mercy, the Spirit's power, and the Son's grace provide salvation for us. He also wants to end us in letting us know the hope, our hope, in salvation. The word here, hope, is not the one that we tend to use for it in our context today, as though we think about hope. Maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll receive eternal life at the end of all things, but maybe we will not. A simple way I might want to illustrate it is usually sometime around 3.30 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I go out on what you might think as Jordan's afternoon constitutional, which is just a run to a particular distance and back in my house. And it doesn't matter how hot it is, how cold it is, it happens about the same time every day. So yesterday, heat index of 115. <laughs> Off I go, there and back, with people along the way questioning my sanity for such things, not least of which is my wife. <laughs> it doesn't take long in this kind of heat to where you feel tired, to feel weak, to where you feel weary. But at least for me, there is something that helps me press on. When I get back, when I get home, there's a cup of cold water. There's a fan to cool me down. There's a place to rest. And I know it's going to be there. It's not like I'm running wondering if there's actually going to be cold water, a fan, and a place to rest on the way. In the same way, God is saying, you have the hope of eternal life the living waters of forgiveness offered to you in Jesus Christ, and you're to live now in the midst of your weakness, in the midst of your weariness, in the midst of your exhaustion, knowing this is what He has promised you when you get to your heavenly, eternal home. You're to live by hope in Jesus Christ, remembering God's sovereign love towards you. Maybe some of you are in here this morning and you actually don't know this sovereign love towards you. What are you then going to do with words about such sovereign grace? Some of you might know the story in 1944 when the Marines took the island, the Pacific island of Saipan. Japanese were obviously leaving the island and the Japanese government called all the citizens there at Saipan to jump off a cliff to their death. 
It was a cliff that became known as Bonsai Cliff. And when the American soldiers realized what was going on, they got on their bullhorns, the American translators, and began to speak in Japanese, don't jump off the cliff. Come to our lines. You'll find safety and equity here. And a few came over to American lines, but most jumped. I pray you're not a person who sees God's call of salvation, God's call of safety, and instead decides to jump to your death by rejecting this good news. He's done it all for you. Goodness, loving kindness, grace, and mercy towards you that you might have the hope of eternal life. Are you going to jump? Or are you going to come down and cling to Christ alone? You'll notice verse 8, which we'll deal with more next week. This is how important these things are. Just mention it in brief passing as we get to our conclusion in a second. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Just underscore the first part. Lord willing, we'll get there more next week. Just the verb. I want you to insist. Titus, insist on these things about the sovereign love of God in Jesus Christ. So some of you in here this morning are thinking about church leadership, studying for pastoral ministry. Here is the call. Insist on these things. The church does not need leaders who insist on secondary matters, who insist on peripheral matters. Pastors who are more intent on liturgical interests, instruments, vestments, Worldly philosophies of leadership and business practices, strategies of practices of pragmatism to grow the church. What you must insist on then as a church is this. Church leaders who insist on this, the sovereign love of God in Jesus Christ. So then my question for you as church members is, maybe recognize you're not expecting enough from your church leaders. Or possibly, isn't it true? You're expecting too much. Insist on this in your ministry, the sovereign love of God towards sinners proclaimed through the ministry of the church. A Friday evening at our house is man, uh, family movie and pizza night. And more often than not, almost overwhelmingly more often than not, we make the pizza at home. And my wife, Emily, works as a NICU nurse at a local hospital, and it's somewhat regular that she's working there on Friday afternoon. And so the pizza dough-making responsibility falls to me. And if you've ever made pizza dough before, you know that you've got to get it just right. Right amount of yeast, temperature of water, olive oil, perfect pinches of salt and sugar, the right rising temperature, the right rising time. You've got to get it right. The ingredients need to be correct. And John Stott, one of the great English theologians of the 20th century, preached a sermon on this passage. He called it the ingredients of salvation. Here's everything you need to know about the God who saves sinners. But it's not just that. It's the ingredients necessary, because if you understand Titus, what he's supposed to understand from Paul, if you understand Paul's logic, it's the ingredients necessary for a life that pleases the Lord. 
Because notice his logic as it's already worked out in this book already. If you glance back up at the first 10 verses of chapter 2, he said, this is the kind of godliness that befits the gospel. The kind of holiness demanded of the various generations in the church. Why should we live like that? Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared. Verse 1 and 2. This is the kind of godliness that God demands of his people as they live in the public sphere. Why? Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 3. For you were once dead in sin, but when the grace of God appeared, you have been saved. You have to understand the logic of how Paul works out our life of godliness, that it is in every way founded on and motivated by the good news, this gospel that God saves sinners. So your struggles in holiness, your struggles in godliness, your your struggles in Christian maturity, in Paul's mind, is nothing more than a struggle to understand the depth, the truth, the reality of his saving grace. So as we begin to close, let me see if I can just bring out two more things, simple things to rest our attention on related to Paul's logic in this passage. First of all, the basics of salvation give us, number one, the basis for humility. He's done it all, hasn't he? He saved us. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. It's even enshrined in our church's confession of faith. If you went home later today, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 8, talks about God's sovereign grace. It says this doctrine promotes humility. Does it promote humility in your life? The basics of salvation is the basis for humility. Number two, the basis for holiness. That is the entire logic of this letter. The church is to be healthy. The church is to be holy in its ministry of Jesus Christ. And the only way that it's ever going to increase in that kind of holiness is as it increases in its understanding, its experience of, its life within the deep waters that are found in the good news that God saves sinners by His sovereign grace alone. So maybe you're like me and you say, I'm struggling for humility. I don't see the fruits of holiness as much as I want to. Paul says, look again to the Father's mercy. Look again to the Spirit's power. Look again to the Son's grace. And you'll find the power, the grace, the mercy necessary to live a life of humility and holiness that honors the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is full of mercy, grace, goodness, steadfast kindness, and faithfulness. We confess that we are more often prone to continue to speak evil of one another, to quarrel, to not be gentle, to not be meek and humble towards all people. Help us, we pray, to know more deeply, more wholly, the good news that you've saved us only by your sovereign grace. Lord, we want to be a people of Christ. We want to be a people led by the Spirit. We want to be a people that honors you. And so help us, we pray, in our ministry together, in our life together, to demand these things, to insist on these things, knowing that they are profitable for our life in Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.